welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry, a March 13th Lord's Day service. to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that Christ be in us, over us, before us, and behind us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are four curious features of this story. And the first is that Jesus heals this man in private. And so we see in verse 32, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he healed the man. So you think, why is Jesus healing the man privately? And one surface level reason is that it makes for a more personal moment with the man. But on a deeper level, privacy is a recurring theme in Mark's gospel. And in the previous instances of privacy, Jesus took the disciples away on their own for private instruction. We see this in Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 6, and earlier in chapter 7. And so by the time you get to this story, and we see again now a fourth time that Jesus is doing something in private, Mark has established something. He's established that privacy is a time for instructing the disciples. Privacy is a time for making disciples. Privacy is a time for teaching the disciples. It's a time of growth for the disciples. And verse 33 says that Jesus took the sick man aside from the crowd privately. And it doesn't explicitly mention the disciples. But we assume they, or at least Peter, James, and John, are with Jesus during the healing. And what happens during the healing? Well, the man's ears are opened and his tongue is released. And that's very interesting because at this point in Mark's Gospels, it's been made very clear to us, story after story, that the disciples likewise need their spiritual ears opened and their tongues released. Jesus directly addresses the disciples' blindness in chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. And we know eventually their blindness is removed. Eventually their dullness is sharpened. So what does it? 
One eventually opens their ears and loosens their tongues. Well, it's many things. And one of those things is the accumulation of many moments in private with Jesus. Some moments have great effect. Other moments that should have great effect have almost no effect. At first, the disciples are blind. And then they begin to see the shape of trees like the blind man in Mark 8, 24. And eventually they see clearly. But through it all, the readers of Mark's gospel are frustrated and they're asking, why are they so slow to learn? Why are they so slow to hear and to see? Maybe you ask that question of other people in your life. Maybe you ask that question of yourself sometimes. And the reason the disciples are so slow to learn is because the work of making a disciple is usually slow work. And we would do well to remember that. We must not get discouraged if after what we think is a key moment, there is minimal apparent progress. When that happens, we need to press on. And we need to stack moments upon moments. And be encouraged because shortly after this healing, Peter takes a big step of faith and confesses that Jesus is the Christ in Mark 8, verses 27 through 30. But through it all, readers of Mark's gospel are waiting for the disciples to get it. They're waiting for the disciples to see the truth. And what you need to realize is that the work of making disciples is usually slow work. And what that means then is if you're doing the work of making the disciple, you have to gear your disciple making to that fact. It is usually slow work. And when things are slow work, they get discouraging because we think this moment, this is the moment. That was a great talk. I was quite eloquent in this moment in private with this little one I'm trying to make a disciple of. And then 20 minutes later, it seems as if nothing has happened. So it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get discouraged when we're in the process of making disciples because making disciples is slow work. And what you need to see is that deaf Peter will hear. Mute Peter will eventually speak. And it very well may be the case that when Jesus heals this deaf, tongue-tied man in this story, it is a symbolic introduction to the gradual enlightenment that is happening to the disciples. And in Mark's gospel, that happens in many ways, and one of those ways is through private moments with Jesus. The second curious feature of this healing story is that Jesus heals with fingers and saliva. And so we see in verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Now when you read the story, there is one question that comes before all the rest. And that is, why is he healing this man by putting fingers in his ears and applying saliva to his tongue? And one surface level reason is that Jesus can't just speak to the man. The man is deaf. He wouldn't have heard what Jesus said. Now, that being said, Jesus could heal the man any way he wants. He could have healed him with a spoken word. 
or he could have laid his hands on him like the crowd suggested in verse 32. But Jesus goes beyond all that, and what we see here is that Jesus makes use of outward signs. Why? Why does Jesus make use of outward signs, of putting fingers in the man's ear and applying saliva to his tongue? We have to remember when Jesus does these miracles, when he makes blind people see or when he makes it so that deaf people can hear, yes, he's healing them physically. But at this point in Mark's gospel, you're starting to realize that Jesus isn't merely healing them physically. He's also healing them spiritually. The miracles of Jesus bring a physical and a spiritual healing. And so Jesus is going to heal this man physically, but the primary intent of Jesus' miracles are to heal them spiritually. And so Jesus is making use of outward signs because Jesus wants to heal this man in such a way so as to create faith. And so by putting his fingers in the man's ears, Jesus shows that it belongs to his office to pierce the ear of the deaf. By spitting and touching the man's tongue, Jesus shows that the ability of speech is given by Christ alone. And even the sigh in verse 34 is intended as an outward sign. That's intended as a visible picture the man can see. When people sigh, you can usually see it. By Jesus sighing and looking up to heaven, he's showing that God is the source of his power. And so in this story, we have to be careful to notice that the man is not healed by fingers in his ear. The man is healed by Jesus' finger in his ear. The man is not healed by saliva. The man is healed by Jesus' saliva. And the man is not even healed by a prayer. He's healed by Jesus' prayer. And so the first curious feature of this story is that Jesus heals the man in private, and the second is that he heals with fingers and saliva. Third, we see that Jesus heals and then commands silence. And so we see in verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear in the mute speak. So Jesus heals the man, and he commands silence to him and those around. So why? Why does Jesus command them to be silent? Well, this is a recurring theme in Mark's gospel, and we addressed it extensively back in the Mark chapter 1 sermons. But Jesus' point with commanding silence is, I mean, there's several things going on here. And, and one of them is the fact that Jesus' true identity cannot be fully understood until his crucifixion and resurrection. Unless you see the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, you will not be able to see Christ clearly. And so this is all before his crucifixion and resurrection. And so Jesus doesn't want a false concept of him as only a miracle worker to spread. And so when Jesus commands them to be silent, he's trying to limit misguided messianic enthusiasm. The time will come for them to see Christ clearly, and that'll be after the crucifixion and resurrection. There's some other reasons as well, but we see, thirdly, that Jesus heals and then commands silence. And... 
the fourth curious feature of this story is that Jesus' healing is connected to Isaiah 35's messianic prophecy. You see, Mark writes about Jesus with a messianic consciousness. And what I mean is that Mark intentionally writes this story in such a way that the reader is supposed to see that Jesus is the Messiah prophesied about in Isaiah 35. And so how does Mark do this? Well, it's in the way he alludes to the Old Testament. And so if you look at verse 32, it says, They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. So that word for speech impediment is the Greek word mogalalos, and it's a very rare word. It's a very unique word. And mogalalos occurs one time in the New Testament. Here, Mark 7.32. It's a rare word, a unique word. And this word mogalalos only occurs one time in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, where we read, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, that is the tongue of the Mogalalos, sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so by using this very unique word, this very rare word, Mark knows that he is forever associating this healing story with the Isaiah 35 messianic prophecy. And there's more that connects this story to Isaiah 35 than just that one word. Just look at how Mark concludes the story. In verse 37, the crowd is saying, He's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is also an echo of Isaiah 35, where we read in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 35 poetically describes the Messianic age. And Mark's allusion to Isaiah 35 implies that the Messianic age has drawn near in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's description of the Messianic age in Isaiah 35. And more specifically, Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37 is a healing story. It's a miracle story. And so realize what Mark has done. He is saying that Jesus' healings are the inauguration of Isaiah 35's restoration prophecies. And so what are Isaiah 35's restoration prophecies? will realize that Isaiah 35 is about way more than just healing a deaf and mute man. It's about how the curse will be reversed. In Isaiah 35, not only will the sick be healed, but the land will be restored. Isaiah 35.1 talks about how the wilderness and the dry land are healed. Isaiah 35.6 talks about that when the Messiah brings salvation, water will break forth in the wilderness. In other words, the Messiah brings physical and spiritual healing to the creation, to the entire creation, to the fallen creation. The Messiah brings restoration. 
The Messiah brings rejuvenation and regeneration to all of creation. And this means that Jesus' miracles are about restoring creation. It's about restoring creation from the fallen conditions of the world. And so not only are the spiritual curses of the fall removed by Jesus, but the physical curses of the fall are removed by Jesus. Deaf people hear, but also the wilderness will receive new life. And when you look at this from the broader story of Scripture, well, Scripture starts, the world starts with God. In the beginning, God created the earth, and it fell into sin, and it was subjected to futility, as Romans 8.20 says. And so the entire cosmos, the entire world, is subjected to futility. Yet here is Jesus coming to reestablish the new creation by bringing the kingdom of God. Jesus brought the kingdom... And the miracles of Christ are reversing the curses of the old, fallen world. And so the miracles of Jesus are a sign of the inbreaking new creation, where people are completely healed, and where, as we learn in Isaiah 35, the creation is also restored and the kingdom grows. And ultimately, it's all about resurrection. When Jesus restores hearing to the deaf and speech to the mute, this foreshadows his resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection foreshadows our resurrection. And as Romans 8, 18 through 27 says, our resurrection foreshadows the resurrection of the entire creation. And it's all connected. So in this story, Jesus told the people to be quiet about it because they only saw the physical side of the healing. When this man is blind and mute, that reflects the fallen world. The only hope for this man is to be delivered. The only hope for this man is to be recreated and reformed by God into an image that reflects not the fallen world, but reflects God's living image. And so what we're seeing, what we're saying here, what Mark is wanting us to see by connecting this all back to Isaiah 35 is that Jesus' miracles are establishing an expanding kingdom. And you have to see that for the kingdom to be established is for the kingdom to be expanded. And for the kingdom to be ex expanded is for the creation to be restored. Mark chapter 1 verse 15, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is at hand. And I'm here to tell you today that he meant it. The kingdom of Christ is at hand now, and it will fill the earth. The mustard seed has been planted. Christianity must grow in such a way that it pervades not merely all nations, but also all of creation. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it will fill the earth. In other words, everything on earth, Every institution on earth, every nation on earth must be brought into relation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. J. Gresham Machen once said that the kingdom must be advanced not merely extensively, but also intensively. In other words, the church must seek to win not merely every person for Christ, but also the whole person to Christ, and also all of creation to the truth of the gospel. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, we read of a coming time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, consider the fullest aspect of what this great consummation means. This means that there will be a time when doubts have disappeared. There will be a time when every apparent contradiction is removed. There will be a time when all science will be sanctified and converged into one great convic conviction professing the living God. There will come a time when all of art is devoted to the one great end. There will come a time when all of human thinking is permeated by the refining, ennobling influence of Jesus Christ. There will come a time when every desire is brought into obedience to Jesus Christ. And you might hear that, and you might think, man, that sounds great, but that isn't the case right now. Right now, the situation is desperate. Right now, the situation is discouraging. And I want to address that directly. We acknowledge that there are times in history when the situation seems desperate and discouraging for the church. And we acknowledge that right now for many people feels like one of those times. But based on the promise of God, those feelings among the faithful must only be temporary. Those feelings will not be permanent if we read the promises of God and the announcement of the kingdom that begins as a mustard seed and ends as a mighty tree. If we are living in vital communion with the risen Lord and with each other, if we are really convinced of the truth of our message, then we can proclaim God's truth before a world of enemies. If we are really convinced of the truth of our message, then the very difficulty of our task, the very scarcity of our allies becomes an inspiration. If we are really convinced of the truth of our message, then we can rejoice that God did not place us in an easy age, but in an age where it is difficult to persevere in faith. If we are really convinced of the truth of our message, then too we shall not be afraid to call forth the saints into pursuing the great consummation where the knowledge of God fills the earth. And again, you might hear that, and you might be convinced, and you might say, okay, I see the promise of the kingdom, I see the promise of the gospel, I see the promise of Isaiah 35, and that Christ has come to begin the fulfillment. And you might say, I want to live in light of that promise rather than in light of the gloom of the news cycle. And you might say, not only that, I want to strategically live based on the promises of God's expanding and triumphant kingdom. And if that is you, and I assume it's all of you who have faith, then let me close with two points of application. If you want to strategically live based on the promises of God's expanding and triumphant kingdom, then first, Focus on the conditions of belief. Focus on the conditions of belief. Here's what I mean. 
God can save anyone at any time. We don't deny that. The decisive thing is always the regenerative power of God's Spirit, which can overcome all lack of preparation to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as J. Gresham Machen again points out, God usually exerts saving power in connection with certain prior conditions of the human mind. In other words, more practically, it's a great obstacle to receiving the truth of the gospel if a person's mind is filled with legions of false ideas. And so, in that context, we may speak as persuasively as Winston Churchill and as fervently as George Whitfield. Yet, if people's minds are filled with a legion of false ideas, if we concede the collective thought of the nation to be controlled by false ideas, our effect will be hampered. When people's minds are filled with false ideas and false desires and false feelings, they tend, in the modern world at least, they tend to regard the truth of Christianity as at best a harmless delusion. And so as Christians, our job isn't to single-handedly change the world. Our job is to lovingly have influence over those God has put in our sphere. And we should be interested in creating the right conditions of belief for those around us. So as to make the acceptance of the resurrected Christ something more than an absurd fairy tale. And it's a great mistake to think that this is only the job of the specialist. Or to think that this is only the job of the professor or the author or the conference speaker or the pastor. Many people of many minds can participate. Many people of many talents can participate. Many people of many types of influence can participate. And so the first way to strategically live based on the promise of God's expanding and triumphant kingdom is to focus on the conditions of belief. And the second thing and final thing as we close is to focus on the way you live. Focus on the way you live. And God can use anyone at any time to influence his kingdom. And it's often the case that God usually exerts influence through people marked by the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, more practically, it's a great obstacle to influence people for the kingdom if your life is filled with sinful attitudes. And so, through the power of the Spirit, take your sinful attitudes to the Lord in prayer and ask that He would replace that hate with love. Ask that the Lord would replace that bitterness with gentleness. Ask that the Lord would replace that anger with joy. Replace that cynicism with patience. Replace that envy with kindness. And replace that idolatry with faithfulness. You see, it's a great mistake to think that influence is only about ideas. See, ideas matter, and they matter a lot. Truth matters, and it matters a lot. And so does your disposition. So does your character. So does the attitudes of your heart. Let us close by praying together. 
Heavenly Father, as we prayed a moment ago, we ask that through your Spirit, Christ be in us, over us, before us, and behind us. We ask for Christ befriending us and sustaining us and satisfying us with his glorious presence. For we know only then in our hearts will the promises of your kingdom overcome the gloom of the news cycle. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.